In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Manliness podcast. While there's been a big push in recent decades to help girls thrive in school and in the workplace, boys in America have been quietly struggling. For example, boys are more likely to have learning and discipline issues in school and are less likely to graduate high school than girls. More women are now attending college than men and are earning more bachelor's and master's degrees than men. The incarceration rate for boys has increased in the past few decades and the suicide rates have also increased among teenage boys. What's more, teachers and therapists have reported that boys seem increasingly disengaged from school and alive. They have some sort of malaise going on. Anyways, if boys are having so much trouble, why don't we hear more about it? And more importantly, what can we do as parents, teachers, and mentors to help them? Well, my guest today has spent his career researching childhood development and helping boys become fulfilled men. His name is Michael Gurian. We've had him on the podcast before. It's episode number 87. You can check that out. And in his latest book, Saving Our Sons, A New Path for Raising Healthy and Resilient Boys, he provides insights on why America's boy problem is ignored, as well as concrete steps that parents and mentors can take to help these young men grow up well. Today on the show, Michael explains what the dominant gender paradigm is and why it causes institutions to ignore the problems of boys and young men, what people get wrong about male violence, and what male anhedonia is. It's kind of a low-grade depression. He then argues that if you want to help boys and girls, we need to approach things from what he calls a nature-based theory that recognizes that while boys and girls have a lot in common, there are biological differences that influence the way boys learn, socialize, and behave. Michael then provides concrete things parents and schools can do to cater to those differences in boys to help them thrive and become resilient men. If you're the parent of a boy, or if you teach or mentor young boys, you don't want to miss this episode. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash savingoursons. Michael Gurian, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for having me. So we had you on the show, I think almost two years ago, to talk about your book, The Wonder of Boys. Um, for those who aren't familiar with your work, you are, you've specialized in sort of the, develop, like the development of boys. That's what your career has been focused on, counseling boys, troubled boys, but also boys who aren't troubled, just helping them thrive. Um, in your latest book, Saving Our Sons, A New Path for Raising Healthy and Resilient Boys, a really good book. Um, can you tell us, like, how does this book pick up from your other books about boys? Is this sort of like the capstone of all your work with boys? Well, yeah, you know, it might be. I mean, I'm, my area is, is really gender, you know, sex and gender on the brain, male, female. So I've written books on both boys and girls, men and women. I think because of The Wonder of Boys, when it came out, there wasn't another book like it, you know, in 1996. And so, so then there were a lot more that, that I did with boys. And I think you're, you're potentially correct that, that if I'm remembered later, it's going to be around this male development. Uh, so I've written 12 books on boys, all from different angles, but none of them, well, two things. The last one was about eight years ago. So a lot of new research has happened in the last eight years. 
so I really wanted to write something that caught everyone up on the new research that helped parents, help teachers based on the, the best new brain research, et cetera. Then the second thing was that it, it, the politics. I've been doing this now for 30 years and Gurian Institute has existed for 20. So both me personally and us institutionally, we've been advocating for both boys and girls, you know, nationally with Congress, et cetera. And sometimes nothing happens. And so I decided I needed to write a book that including a couple chapters on the politics, on, on what we have to do if we're really going to save our sons. Well, let's talk about that. Why, why do American boys need saving? I mean, what's the problem with boys today? Well, it's many fold. You know, um, there's a chapter in the book on neurotoxins. I mean, one of the problems is just what's coming in to their brains and bodies. And then technology, you know, that's really having an effect on their brains and bodies. So there's those sorts of environmental things we have to look at depression, under-motivation. The WHO put out a study last year that said, you know, this isn't, this isn't just an American problem or even a European problem. Uh, all over the world, males are behind females, you know, in health outcomes. So that's both physical and mental health outcomes. So I think what we, what we have thought was that, you know, boys are fine. Girls are troubled. We got to help girls. Boys are fine. Uh, but they're just not. In, you know, in suicide, in the grades they're getting, they get two-thirds of the Ds and Fs. They only get 40% of the As. So it's not as if they're succeeding very well in school. Um, there really isn't an environment right now where boys are doing well, except those men who are, you know, really strong, high testosterone, really smart guys. You know, there's probably 100,000 of them who are running corporations, who are at the top, who are running the White House. Uh, but as we go below them, then we're starting to see tens of millions of boys in trouble. So why do these pro problems that boys are facing, why do they often get ignored or overlooked? Or why is it often seen that girls are the ones that need more help than boys, even though the statistics show that might not be the case? Well, yeah, I think we're, we're in a kind of political, sociological bind. And I call it the big three that sort of runs this bind that we're in. So the big three is, is academics. So the academy, universities, colleges, government, and the media, and all three of them. And I'm, you know, I've been a part of all three. So I, I'm really not saying anything negative about all three. They all are, are doing their best. But when it comes to boys, they're not doing their best. So the academic world doesn't really want to look at males. It, you know, it, it mainly looks at females, obviously. So it doesn't want to look at it. So it doesn't really, in comparison to females, it doesn't really generate research. It doesn't create programming that really helps young guys. So obviously some are doing it, but very, very few in comparison to what's happening to help girls. And then government takes what academics do. So government just says, the people at Harvard say this, this is what we're going to do. So government isn't really helping boys very much. And in fact, I have a quote in the book from a Department of Justice official who said, look, when we spend money on guys, it's prison, right? We're spending correction dollars on them, billions of correction dollars, but, but nothing, nothing really preventative. And it's very hard for guys to get any kind of government programming that mainly goes to women and children. So, you know, so that's good. It goes to women and children, but, but it's not going to guys. So we're not really seeing what's going on with guys. And then the media sort of takes what government and academics do. And while some of us in the media, like yourself, are working to try to understand boys, you know, most come from what I call the dominant gender paradigm, which is that masculinity is toxic, guys have everything, females are oppressed. And that's just, you know, no longer true in the U.S. and in the West. We've got to be more subtle than that. But that's kind of the, the paradigm. 
So we don't really get the help for these guys because academics, government, and the media are not really understanding how dire the situation is getting for young men. Well, let's delve deeper into this, this dominant gender paradigm because it's an important idea that it's woven throughout your book. When and why did this paradigm arise that you know masculinity is toxic and girls need more help than boys? Yeah, you know, 50 to 100 years ago, it was a really smart paradigm. So I'm 60, I'll turn 60 next year. So I'm raised as a first wave feminist by first wave feminist parents. And, you know, I completely bought into it. And to some extent, obviously, I still think there are parts of the world where this dominant gender paradigm is important. And the paradigm is females are oppressed, males are the oppressors. When it's not males, it's the patriarchy. So the patriarchy is oppressive. Even if guys are good, it's the patriarchy. And the patriarchy is systemic. So the patriarchy hits everything. So there's no nothing going on that isn't oppressive of females. And if someone says, well, but wait, you know, then the response is, well, you're just part of the patriarchy, so you can't see the systemic problem. You know, as you deconstruct that, we find things like white male privilege is the problem and masculinity is the problem, right? And we got to get rid of white male privilege and we got to get rid of masculinity and that's going to solve the problem. Um, So this was all really logical 50 years ago. We needed to turn things around. We just couldn't have a situation where females were so undernurtured in our culture. So I think it was useful then. But I think the problem with the paradigm now is it was not based in science. And we now have a lot of science. But now it's very superficial. Uh, And I prefer brain science. I prefer real scientific data to look at what's happening and so I think this DGP, this dominant gender paradigm, uh, we just simply have to battle it in the big three, or we're not going to get the science through, we're not going to get the real data through, and we're not going to solve these problems. You know, we can't solve things anymore by just saying, oh, it's masculinity, that's really bad, and uh, oh, the patriarchy is systemic, and oh, these white males are bad. Like, it's, this is just not going to solve the deep-rooted problems in all races, in all groups, and in all socioeconomic levels in the U.S., so, I mean, some, I guess the, one of the gists that I got from your idea of the dominant gender paradigm is that they often think that gender or masculinity or femininity is a social construct that can just be changed and manipulated. Yeah, that's why they say you can get rid of it, right? But you argue that there's more of a, you, I guess you argue for a nature-based theory of gender. Um, so what is that nature-based theory? Yeah. Yeah. Well, for instance, you know, male violence. I have a whole chapter in there where I completely deconstruct the the supposed causes of male violence in the U.S., uh, right? I mean, the supposed cause is masculinity, toxic masculinity, the patriarchy, etc. And I, uh, I kind of get rid of that and say, look, hold on, that is a correlation. That is not a cause. The causes are, you know, neurotoxins, lack of attachment, abuse, trauma, all these other things are the causes. So nature-based theory says we got to look at the causes. So for instance, if you say, look, there are guys, we're natural creatures, right? We're creatures of nature. And nature is not teaching boys to go become violent. That's not what nature is teaching boys. It's much more, much more complex than that. So why would they become violent? Well, it's not, not because of this culture construct that makes them become violent. It's because there's stuff going on in their cells, in their brains that are, that are making them become suicidal or making them go hit and hurt other people. Um, that's what we need 
to look at. So <clears throat> that's sort of where I introduced this concept that the way we approach social problems is not natural. And so we're not solving social problems. We're not solving male violence. Male violence is, is, is bad, right? All violence is bad in the U.S. and we're not solving it through these paradigms. So nature-based theory starts with that. And so then, of course, I'm starting with the human brain and the male and the female brain are part of the human brain. The male and the female brain are different. And uh, we have thousands of studies. I have thousand on my website that show how different the male and the female brain are. Now, obviously, there are some people out in the kind of the big three, especially the media, you know, who are saying, oh, no, 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 male and female brain aren't different. Uh, That's just not the case. There's no way to say that and really look at science. So you have to just say, okay, forget the science. (laughs) We're going to just use our culture concept. So, So the important thing for people to remember, which I do in the book, is I distinguish between sex and gender. Gender is something that's amorphous and that we can talk about and say, hey, on, on, on this day, I feel more female than male. And that's, I actually think that's great. Uh, I'm very glad that I have a well-developed feminine side. Um, you know, that's gender. But sex on the brain is sex. That's sex on the brain. And that happens in utero. And so the male brain is doing words on the left. The female brain is doing words on both sides. That's true whether you're, you come from Africa, whether you come from Europe, Asia, you know, anywhere, because this comes in on the X and the Y chromosome. So that stuff, that stuff is binary. Male and female are different, but you can argue that gender is amorphous. And so what we have to be able to do is do both. And of course, as you know, in my book, in my work, I do both. I say, okay, gender's over here. We can talk about it. Let's do it. But maleness and femaleness, that's rooted in nature so we're going to have to look at that. And besides, you, know, you, you mentioned one difference between the male and female brain where males use words on the left side and females doing both sides. What are some other differences between the male and female brain? Well, another profound difference is the way that we use our white matter and gray matter. So we all have white matter and gray matter, all brains. Um, but male brains are using up to seven times more gray matter activity to do the things they do. And gray matter happens in splotches in the brain. White matter is spread throughout the brain. Females are using up to 10 times more white matter activity when they do what they're doing. And this is when males and females are doing the same task. So for instance, let's say that we're talking about protecting the emotional lives of girls and the emotional lives of boys. When I work with that in the book, I'm saying to people, you know, the emotional lives of boys works differently than girls. So if we say to to four-year-old boys and in preschools and four-year-old girls, if we say to them, use your words, you know, if every time they do something that we don't particularly like, something impulsive or they move around a lot or they fidget or they, they bop someone else on the head, you know, or whatever it is in their sort of affectionate way, if we say, no, 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 guys, that's bad, you got to use your words. So if guys can't access the words as quickly as girls, you know, we're going to punish the guys. And the reality is their brains don't access these words, especially words connected to feelings and emotions and impulses as quickly as girls do. So from preschool all the way through elementary school, of course, we just keep punishing these guys as if they're inherently defective and, and they fail and they drop out and, you know, they hate school and all of this. And we're not realizing, whoa, we never trained preschool teachers. We never trained elementary, secondary school teachers, not even college teachers. We didn't show them these brain scans. So in my lectures, of course, I'm showing all these brain scans and saying, look how different these brains are. And, and you know, that becomes life-changing. But if we don't show that stuff to people and don't teach them this stuff, then they will be punishing boys and they also won't be teaching girls in the best ways. Right. And you make an interesting point too, Not the difference between the male brain and the female brain, also male physiology and female physio- physiology, that in a lot of ways, boys are more fragile 
than girls are when they're first starting out in life until they get to adulthood? Yeah, well, the Y chromosome itself, you know, which is the male chromosome, the Y chromosome itself is a more fragile chromosome even than the X. I mean, so this starts at a cellular level. And certainly guys armor up. That's part of testosterone, especially through pu- puberty, we armor up. And, and that, that's normal. That happens everywhere. But part of why we're armoring up is because our emotional construction and our cells are so fragile. And we know this. Unconsciously, we know this. And this is one of the reasons also that, you know, pretty much every culture, as it has raised boys, has said, hmm, you know, we got to make sure to toughen these guys up. And of course, that became a negative construct in that some people used it to just shut down guys, to just say, you know, no emotional life for you. So they misinterpreted what nature is trying to do to help guys. They misinterpreted that, those folks did, and they did damage. And that's part of what led to the dominant gender paradigm, actually, was, you know, that that no one wanted to see guys being told, you can't feel, feeling is bad, right? No one wants that. So, but the reality is that, that male emotional life is very fragile, that you see it on the chromosome and then you see it in the first few months and years of life. And in fact, new studies have shown that when females and males suffer trauma, uh, trauma is bad for every, everyone, but when females and males suffer trauma, females are more likely to develop good social emotional skills later and they are more functional later as adults uh, than males are. So like divorce trauma is one that's been studied. Divorce trauma is harder on males than females on average. Some females, obviously, it destroys them. But on average, it's harder on males than females, partly because males are fragile and partly because the father gets removed generally. And then that increases the male fragility and affects his development. So in many, many ways, males are more fragile than females. And I have two daughters, so this isn't to say females are not fragile or that we shouldn't protect them. Uh, But one of the calls in saving our sons is to understand just how fragile these guys are. So that means, um, the argument you make throughout the rest of the book is that because boys are different from girls, we need to approach raising them differently. We can't do this sort of one-size-fits-all approach that we've been doing maybe for the past 50 years. Yeah, absolutely. This goes for schools, this goes for homes, preschools, you know, everywhere where males are. We have to understand them better understand their fragilities and their strengths, right? Their assets, right? Et cetera, who they are. And then we need to use multiple strategies. So I'll I'll give an example of how this works. A number of new studies have come out and I have them in the book on what we call bi-strategic parenting and then multi-strategic mentoring. So like when you say one size fits all, the most common one size fits all that gets used is use your words, right? Use your words. Don't do that. Use your words. Okay. That's an example of a a mono-strategic approach. So school systems uh, and parenting systems, when fathers are gone, they rely heavily on that single strategy. And it's not enough uh, for, I believe, either boys or girls and a trans, anyone on the gender spectrum. I don't think it's enough. But for boys especially, it's problematic because they're not able to access the words and the feelings that people want them to access. And it's not, it's not the only way to help them develop impulse control. So bi-strategic means, okay, you, we need another strategy. And so it's not going to be word-oriented. It's going to, for instance, be more physical, more kinesthetic. And an example is is intervention and non-intervention. The use your words is, I'm going to intervene. So if you go knock another guy down, I'm going to intervene and stop that 
stop that. Don't touch that person. Use your words. Touch is bad. But the other strategy in the buy strategic would be, oh, guess what? Uh, that's actually okay. Neither of you is in danger. You guys are going to work this out. And by working it out, you're actually going to control your impulses, develop self-regulation, mature, grow up, right, et cetera, et cetera. That's a different strategy. And what we need is a bi-strategic and multi-strategic approach to these boys. When schools do that, so the Green Institute trains schools in this, so that's the educators and the parents, when they switch over, toward this bi-strategic approach, they get rid of things like zero tolerance policies, which basically punish boys and massively punish uh, boys of color. They get rid of that stuff and they use this more complex approach on the playground, in the classroom, at home, and boys' grades go up, there's less discipline referrals to the principal, right? So they're better behaved, et cetera. So that's kind of what I'm, what I'm getting at is, is I'm agreeing with you, this one size fits all, zero tolerance, that stuff is, is gotta be part of the past. It does not work to help us really raise the wonderful kids we want to raise. Yeah, I think this raises an interesting point. Um, one, is, one of my favorite chapters was about male nurturance. Um, there's a, this idea, I think, because of the dominant gender paradigm that uh, boys, males, they're not naturally nurturing, right? Girls, females, they're the more nurturing sex. Um, but I've always thought, no, I, I, in my own experience, I never saw that. In my own, own experience that males are nurturing, we just do it in a different way. How do males nurture that's in a way that's different from, say, females? Well, yeah, at the baseline, because of the testosterone oxytocin differences and these other sort of hormonal biochemical differences and then the you know cellular differences and then of course which affects brain differences this is all sort of creating a baseline at which more females will use what I call direct empathy nurturance, and more males will use what I call aggression nurturance or challenge nurturance. You know, both females and males can use what each other does, right? We're very complex, and, and males can nurture in the same way females do, females, males, absolutely. But in general, we find this baseline difference. So to give an example, there's a street hockey game, and it's 10 to 12-year-olds, and they're, they're playing street hockey uh, on their rollerblades, and this like 11 year old boy falls down and the a girl who's on her skates comes right over, you know, and kind of gets to his level and says, are you okay? What can I do for you? Okay. That's direct empathy nurturance and the cells in her brain, especially in this part of the brain called the insula fill up with these mirror neurons. And so her brain and her body move toward what we call empathy, right? Which is this getting at his level, trying to, to make him feel better right now. Well, another boy, kind of a 12 year old boy over here from the other side, comes rolling by and he, he ascertains that this 11 year old is not hurt. You know, he skinned his knee, but oh, well, he's not dead. So he says, come on, get up, get up. We need you. Well, that's called challenge nurturance or, or aggression nurturance. And both of these kinds of nurturance are crucial. We need to have people, you know, saying to the boy, are you okay? What can I do for you? And, and guys can do that too, of course. And we need to have people saying, you know what? You're needed as part of this team. You're needed as a human being. You're needed as an asset. I'm going to nurture you by helping you feel needed as opposed to by saying, oh, it's okay. You know, uh, you know, you're okay. What can I do? So both are equally good. Both are essential. Males tend more toward challenge nurturance, even though males can be quite empathic. Females tend more toward empathic nurturance, even though they can be challenging. And this is actually a very, very good thing. So that chapter is kind of laying out all the ways from empathy to aggression nurturance that males are nurturing and trying to get guys to tap into that and get the communities and the families to understand that, it's, it, that these are equally good ways of nurturing, that we have to stop thinking of nurturing as only being 
how are you? Are you okay? What do you need? What can I do for you? Yeah, I think that's a good. I think it's a good point because I think a lot of I think new moms particularly like they'll have boys and they don't understand that and they'll see boys like the the aggressive aggression nurturance I've also seen manifest in like teasing or you give like your buddies a nickname that's not that nice right but it's all done in like like goodness like you you give them that that weird nickname because you actually care for them and I think a lot of moms or women don't understand that uh yeah you're right moms and female teachers and and they're coming from their brain base and which you know obviously we completely we're so glad they have their brain base because without the female brain base humanity would not exist right now so we think it's a great thing of course um but because they come from that point of view they see danger when danger may not exist they see bullying when bullying may not exist. They see teasing as a negative when, as, as you've expressed, all of us who are guys, <laughs> right, we know that teasing is actually a way of respecting. It's a way of challenging. It compels the one who's teased to tease back, which actually builds self, builds self-concept, self-construal. It's actually really a good thing. And neither person is hurt by it. And it's it's all locked into the way that males do pecking orders and hierarchies and how they earn their place. And all of it's incredibly emotional. We are doing a lot of emotional work and a l- emotional development in the pathways between the limbic brain and the frontal cortex. A lot of this stuff is happening for males while they're engaging in this behavior. But females especially don't think it's happening. And very sensitive guys also, you know, it's har- harmful to them and they don't think it's happening. They would rather it was this other way. And so we want to respect the other way, but we want to say that, no, no, there's gobs of emotional development going on when I name someone something and he has to respond and then we bop each other on the shoulder and then we wrestle and then we make fun of each other. And then a day later, I'm making fun of him. All of this stuff is deep emotional work. So uh, besides all these, just these issues that are facing boys, you give out these extensive statistics about the problems boys are facing. You mentioned this sort of underlying um, condition you're seeing in boys more and more, and it's male, I'm probably going to butcher this, anhedonia? Yeah, anhedonia. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. What is male anhedonia? Well, you know, it's a number of us started looking at this 30, 40 years ago, right? We were starting to see guys who seemed kind of mildly depressed, like we wouldn't call them clinically depressed. They didn't fit the DSM for that. But but we said, God, they just seem kind of depressed. And then over the last 20 years or so, you know, under motivation is a term that's used a lot now. Now we're seeing millions of them, you know, basically living in basements, playing video games, under motivated. They're dropping out or they're getting C's and D's in school, but they're really, you know, they're smart guys, etc. So this under motivation is an example of this anhedonia. So anhedonia is a term that comes actually from sexual anhedonia. It's when a guy isn't motivated to have sex. He's not motivated to to have that emotional intimacy as well as to procreate. He's just, that that's where it comes from. Well, I'm taking the term now as a way of as uh, looking at this under motivation and these, these lethargic sort of almost paralyzed guys who just stimulate their brains through video games or then they use porn instead of actual intimacy. This is anhedonia. This is an under motivated, I would, I would say mildly depressed male. And now I believe we have between 10 and 20 million of them in the U.S., and that is really worrisome because they're not going to be able to find jobs and work. It's going to grow. We're going to grow more of these guys. They're not you know, going to be able to partner or if they partner, they'll have sex and have a baby, but they're not going to be able to be fathers. Um, you know, this is this to me is a crucial social issue that that the big three has got to look at. And and the dominant gender paradigm, which is, oh, it's, you know, masculinity. They're holding on to male privilege. That just doesn't work. 
you know, it's just a silly paradigm for this condition. Gotcha. Well, let's go back, circle back to schools. Uh, academics is one of the, the big three you talk about that are kind of encouraging this dominant gender paradigm. When parents are looking at schools and they're looking for a school that takes into account the differences that boys have and how they learn, how they mature, what should parents look for in a school? Like, how do they know if a school is boy friendly? Yeah, the first thing they should ask is have your teachers and your staff been trained in how boys learn? So that's a key word, in how boys learn. And then another key word is in how boys and girls learn differently. Uh, you could also say in the minds of boys. These are key terms to ask. And, and, you know, it's are your teachers trained in these things? And if the principal or if it's a preschool, if the teachers, et cetera, if they come back and say, yeah, we did a book study or, yeah, we know about that, right? But they haven't gotten training in it. So they haven't really altered their system to take it into account, then, you know, parents are probably walking into a situation where at some point one or more of their sons may have trouble in that school. It may not happen in the first six months. It may happen in the next grade. But we're going to what we're going to have is a number of teachers who don't understand how guys learn. So they're not creating classrooms uh, and they're not creating behavioral um, uh, policies that are going to work for boys. So that's the easiest thing to do. Is your staff, are your teachers, is everyone trained in how boys and girls learn differently? And let's say you're at a school and you say you don't have much choice in a school. You're going to public schools and like the school you have is the school you have. How can you raise or push for your, the teachers to make the school more boy-friendly in a constructive manner? Because I imagine a lot of you, a lot of people might get some pushback against that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely pushback happens. One of the reasons I wrote Saving Our Sons, I wrote it as a resource so that parents can take it into the schools. And I did it even better than I did Minds of Boys, which came out um, 12 years ago. I wrote that one also as a resource saying to parents, okay, take this into the principal. I've set it up for you to do that. And I know that parents did that because a number of those schools you know, are different now than they were before. And there are books by others that parents can take in as well. I've just set these books up for parents to do it. And so what I argue for parents to do is to form what I call a parent-led team. So this is going to be three to five parents and or parent couples. Um, so it's going to be five to 10 people, right? Five moms, five dads, or, you know, depending on the family structure, could be some single moms, some moms, dads, but it's going to be somewhere between five and 10 parents and their sons. They're going to get together and form this team because their sons are having trouble. And our research, we show in classrooms of 30. So we've trained 60,000 teachers. So we have 20 years of research. We show in classrooms of 30 that five or more boys are going to be struggling and that one girl is going to be struggling, right? So it's a big difference. And we're bracketing out learning disabilities. These are not learning disabled. So that means there's going to, there's a pool of parents. And if they get together, you know, and they say, wow, your guy's getting C's and D's and oh, yours is too. And yours is always going to the principal. Okay. So then we know that school hasn't received this training. And uh, very often the principals actually will look at it because it's all set up for them. You know, the, okay, I've got five parents to 10 parents. So it's not one parent, it's five to 10 parents coming into my office. Oh, gee, I better pay attention to this, you know? And then they study it, you know, they read a chapter or two of it, that's all they have time to do. And then they go, hmm, maybe we ought to look at this. And then they 
pool the faculty, they talk to the faculty, and then they start finding, oh, look at our data. So then they, what they do is they disaggregate their data, which means they just look at their data for gender. And they say, hmm, look at this. You know, 70% of the Ds and Fs are going to boys. Oh, yeah, we have a problem, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's a process that takes three to six months of parent-led teams going in and, and getting the schools to pay attention. And luckily now, see, the Green Institute, we have 150 trainers. So so we have the trainers available. And so quite often what the principals do is they just call and then we set up the training and then they gather their data a year later. They, they see their data and they see the grades of the boys have gone up, the discipline referrals have gone down. So what's happened is the grassroots, the parents have fomented change in the schools and they've done it in a collaborative way so that they're not attacking the schools, they're collaborating with the schools. Is, I mean, how does a teacher's approach to teaching boys change once they go through this training? Well, I'll give you some examples of sort of things that immediately happen. So for instance, teachers, after the training, they'll let boys use squeeze balls, for instance. They'll have them have objects in their hands because they'll learn, we'll show them the scans, and they'll learn that the right side of the male brain is not doing words, but it is doing what we call spatial, spatial mechanicals, which means objects moving through space. So, so they'll, they'll start tapping into the right side of the male brain right? They'll go, oh, shoot, we've been teaching almost completely verbally with workshops, words, you know, words, 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 and not realizing that the female brain does that on both sides. So of course the girls are going to do better at that. And, and some guys are very wordy, like I am, by the way. And so, you know, we'll do fine with words. But we got five to seven guys in that classroom who need the right side of the brain stimulated so that they can stimulate the left, right? They need the spatials. So they'll give them these squeeze balls. They'll let them move around physically in the back of the classroom, you know, in ways that are non-intrusive. Um, this is all physical kinesthetic. They'll change the lesson planning so that they'll always have project-based learning, which is where you do something for a week. You don't do it on a worksheet for a half hour. You do the project for a week and you learn everything during your, while you're doing the project. That, that's kinesthetic. That allows for guys to move around, for everyone to do things. And none of these strategies are bad for girls, by the way. It's just that girls tend to like to sit still more. They tend to like to do more words, you know, uh, et cetera. Uh, and then the visual. The other thing males are doing on the right is visual so what we call visual graphic. And the teachers will start tapping into that. And they'll say, oh, okay, so now what we're going to do is we're going to have more drawing, more graphics, more graphics up projected. And we're going to say to guys, hey, if you want to draw a storyboard before you write this paper or before you write this story I want you to write, go ahead and draw the storyboard. So, you know, that's easy to do. You just take a big piece of paper, divide it into six sections and have them draw what they're about to write. And in elementary school, this is just great because uh, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, you can already see boys' grades going down. But this practice, they incorporate this practice and grades start going up, uh, especially on writing tasks because now the guys have drawn out what they're going to write. So when they write, it's better organized because they've got six quadrants, right, that they can refer to. And they have more, more detail because they've drawn it out already. So now they're getting very detailed essays and stories. And, and we find boys that were getting C's and D's in those classes go up to A's and B's because now they're doing better at it. So these are just a few examples of what happens when the teachers get trained in it. You know, they need training in it. They need a couple days of really inculcating it so that they change things around and so the system changes things around. But by the end of the year, as they're incorporating all of this and getting the feedback on it, uh, things change. Yeah. And I think another approach you advocate, and I, I know Leonard Sachs does, is don't be afraid of competition in school. I feel like a lot of it's just like, make sure no one like feels bad that they're worse, but like boys actually thrive on competitive learning in a way. 
Yeah, and actually competition now is a, is, is a double asset. It's good for both boys and girls to compete. So, because the real world is competitive, so it's just, it's really good that they compete uh, at, at all levels. It's good to compete. And for boys in particular, competition will help them to learn better because there's something at stake for them, especially in a lot of the stuff that's getting taught, which really isn't relevant to them. And in fact, it's not relevant for life. That's an unfortunate thing that's going on that we're trying to work on with educational reform is trying to get teachers, especially in public schools, to stop teaching things that are just not relevant. So it's especially good for guys, if they're going to try to learn this stuff, to get the grades, to be competing, because that helps them to make it relevant to them. And then the second whammy on it, the second reason it's an asset, is that with male testosterone levels being lower anyway, which is not a thing we want, competition does compel the cells to develop more testosterone, right? It, there's an access, brain-to-body access. And so it will actually help them to develop more of the chemical we need them to develop so that they will be motivated. And that's kind of the, the big takeaway when we teach this to teachers. They look at how unmotivated guys are, and then they use these competition strategies we teach them. And then they, so then they use these games and these competitions. And then, you know, they look back two months later and they say, ooh, yeah, those four boys who were so unmotivated, they're more motivated now. And, and so that's like the, the outcome that they can measure. All right. So we've been talking about elementary, middle, high school. Let's move on to college. Um, campus gender politics in the past 20 years have just become a minefield. How are college campuses male unfriendly? Well, yeah, the colleges, you know, part of the big three. I mean, the academic world is, is, is kind of the ground of this stuff, of the not teaching this stuff. And, of, and, and it's really showing in our colleges I'll give a few ways that I talk about in the book. One is the minefield itself. So I tell that story of me and the college president talking, and I've hidden everyone's names to protect everyone, you know, where this is a female college president who can see that they're losing males. You know, males are not graduating as much as females. Obviously, it's a 60-40 split now, only 40% males. Um, and then they're not even coming in, right? And then when they're in, they're not involved. They're not engaged. And, and then, uh, of course, now with all the sexual drama going on, this rape crisis kind of hysteria out there that guys are raping women in colleges, that's really added to this problem. So what the academic world has to do, what I'm suggesting in my book, as you know, is it, it needs to develop a manhood studies program in every college, and, a, and obviously in every college that has a women's studies program. It's got to do this, because if it does not do this, and if it does not reorient colleges toward a kind of balance between females and males, what we will continue to have is an environment in which males are attacked, masculinity is attacked, the dominant gender paradigm, the DGP, is very, very active in colleges, and it's driving males out, and we really don't want that. We, we gotta have males trying to love college, you know? And uh, we gotta have males in college. Uh, not every male will go to college, God knows, but the males who, who want it and who can go, we need it to be an environment where they're gonna succeed as well as the females. And right now, females are just totally outpacing them. And that's bad for employment, that's bad for our economy, it's bad at an individual level, it's bad for future families. So our colleges are gonna have to really look within and they're gonna have to fight against these sort of very vocal forces inside the college that are using this old dominant gender paradigm that is just no longer the best paradigm 
for modern life. I actually don't think it's a, a paradigm for females either, by the way, as a father of daughters. But it's going to take a big fight because whenever someone raises their voice and like I've gone to colleges and spoken and when I speak out about this, you know, of course we get this vocal attack that you're white male and the masculine privilege and you're terrible and you're patriarchal and you're oppressive and all of this. And the, the colleges are going to have to battle against this because one individual like me or, or Leonard Sachs or, or you, we need a grassroots effort. You know, it's one individual is only going to peck a little, chisel a little hole in it. It needs a whole, who needs the whole country to awaken to the fact that, that the colleges are so overrun by a paradigm that does not apply to most people. Right, right. So, so it's a long, it's a long-term project. It's not going to happen overnight. Well, it can't because this dominant gender paradigm is so entrenched. And an example is what's happening with the, the rape culture. And I, as you know, in chapter four, I spend a long section on that. I asked them, this whole rape crisis hysteria thing, one in five females are sexually assaulted in college, right? That came out. It was all they were kind of bogus studies. They, they weren't correct, but that's what came out. And so then we got the Dear Colleague letter in 2011. Well, my kids were still in college, my daughters. So I went to them and I said, okay, look at this. I mean, I'm, I'm writing about this. My colleagues are writing about this. We know the statistic is a bogus statistic, but one rape is too many, right? So all of us want to help protect young women. So is this the right way to do it? Is the right way to do it to just say, if a woman accuses a guy, he needs to get kicked out. And even my own daughters said, uh, no, this is, this is not a correct way to handle this. Um, and of course, it's going to drive more and more guys out of college. So that's an example of where, where this extreme view that's not accurate to real life takes over. We can protect females without creating this massive backlash by males and by females, my own daughters who didn't really think this was a good idea. We can protect females better without accusing males of all of these, all this malice and all this crazy violence. Uh, really, there are better ways to do it and our colleges will have to deal with that. They'll have to say, wait a minute, males and females in partnership, um, let's do this a better way. All right. So it's not a zero sum game is what you're saying. It's not. No, it's, it, we, we've got to stop thinking, um, okay, if we see this area where females are not doing as well, that we therefore have to crush, <laughs> you know, all these other things going on with males. It, we got to stop thinking like this. So uh, another issue that you talk about that kind of contributes to this male anhedonia is uh, technology or digital technology. Can you talk about what you see the role of digital technology in the lives of young men and how it's contributing to the problems that they're facing? Yeah, I have all the updated. So for anyone who's raising a son or looking at this, I have all the updated research in a couple places, including one long chapter in Saving Our Sons. And then I have all the studies, et cetera, in the end notes. So people can check this themselves because people, you know, especially if their guys are into video games and into technology, quite often they don't want to say, oh, wait, this could be harmful <laughs> because they're saying to themselves, well, look, my guys are engaged in something, <laughs> you know, so isn't that great? And I'm not anti-technology and I make that very clear. Technology is a great asset. And my whole, my whole nature-based theory is based on brain scans and on technology, right? Showing this to people. So technology is a good thing, but it's developmental. So what we have to realize is, is two major areas of potential distress for male development. One is screen time itself. So I kind of divide things up so people can look at this 
developmentally. You know, like a two a two year old, you don't really want that two year old's brain in front of a screen hardly at all. And I, I travel a lot in airports, right? So I'm seeing people giving their their one and two year old kids their cell phones to keep those kids occupied. Well, those people don't realize that that will damage the brains of these kids, male and female. And for males, the male brain is pretty fragile in its development, and we're going to damage a lot of its impulse control ability, its social emotional development, and even some of its cognitive ability by putting it in front of these screens so young. So screen time itself is an issue all the way through from birth all the way through 25-ish, you know, which is sort of as males are finalizing their development. And then, and then the other thing is um, social emotionals to look at how, so in normal male development over a period of, of, you know, this birth to 25, these pathways are developing and the synapses are closing, et cetera, because uh, that brain is involved in its, in its natural environment. It's learning through its family system, through nature, through playing in the mud, through its chemistry set, you know, all of these things. It's learning all this stuff in normal pathway development because normal pathway development is not set up for screens. Screens are very passive. Normal pathway development is active as a boy is interacting in its environment. Well, screens make everything passive. So, uh, and then video games themselves as a screen, not only, you know, are somewhat passive, even though they seem very active in terms of brain development, they're only developing certain parts of the brain and they're fooling the brain into thinking it's accomplished something. So as it gets better at the video game, it, it, the brain thinks it's accomplishing something. So then it leads to some under motivation in the other tasks like school, you know, chores, work, all these other things we really need the brain to do family development, and then social emotional development, being able to interact, being able to be an, a mature adult and interact with, with others. It, it's doing so much fooling of the brain that it's not developing these other functions. And so video games especially can be problematic. By the time the kid's 15 you know, to the 25 age group, they're probably going to be playing more video games. I'm begging people, however, to, number one, don't give these kids cell phones until they're 13 or 14. Really protect those brains because they can do everything on their cell phones now anyway. So that helps them get rid of some screen time. But then number two, don't let them be playing video games on school nights. Just say no to video games on school nights. Yes, video games on the weekend, no on school nights. Just so that we can tamper back some of this negatives to brain development. Yeah. And I also like the point you make is, is you can use video games in a constructive manner. Like you can talk to your kids or your sons about some of the themes that they're playing in the video game. If you're playing some kind of war game, like talk about heroism and warriorhood and things like that. And then you can have a conversation about important topics through the video game. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I'm glad you said that because, of course, we don't want to be saying it's all negative. Of course, it's not. Uh, you can use video games for this this sort of hero development, character development. And I give a number of strategies for that where, like from Halo, you know, where you can take dialogue and take actions right from the video game. And dads are often playing games with sons, right? So they're a they're a great asset for this. And they can, they can say, okay, you know, what'd you think of that? What, what do you think of that? Uh, you know, you'll do it after you play the game, of course, but then you're reflecting. And this, this self-reflection, this ability to reflect is really great for the brain development of these kids. And this is where you're using the video game as an asset. And we, and we want to say that the makers of video games, you know, they're very, very smart people. And I don't think they understand that there can be some brain development issues. I think what they were tapping into was the hero development in the male. And we really want that hero and character development in guys. 
we need that. We want them to become men of character. And video games are developing that kind of warrior part of the character. Uh, and, and that's not a bad thing. It's, it's a good thing. They're developing the hero part. That's a good thing. So we can use the games as long as we tap into that positive development. Now, games like Grand Theft Auto, it's very hard for me, truthfully, to find anything redeeming about that game. Uh, so I would like to talk to my son even about that. If he's playing that, I better play it with him. And then I better say, okay, look at the way women are objectified. Look at what this is doing to you as a, as a man and look what it's doing to women. So even the games that I don't like, I think we can use um, uh, as an asset. Well, Michael, there's a lot more we could talk about. Um, where can people go to learn more about your book and your work? Well, yeah, if people go to michaelgurian.com, G-U-R-I-A-N, michaelgurian.com. If they go there, that's going to tap them. You know, the book's right there. They're going to see that and tap them into other things. And then if they're in schools or if their parents concerned about boys in schools, go to gurianinstitute.com and you'll see all our programs, you know, for schools and for communities. Awesome. Michael Gurian, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thanks, Brett. Thanks for what you're doing. My guest here is Michael Gurian. He's the author of the book, Saving Our Sons. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find out more information about his work at michaelgurian.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash savingoursons for links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy this show, I've got something out of it. I'd really appreciate it if you take one minute or so to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.